our entire justice system, our entire legal system is built around the people who are paid to resolve disputes, who are paid to transact legal needs, not around the people who actually have these needs, who are suffering from these disputes, who need the help. And, and, and that's really, I think, where we have fundamentally consistently run into all the roadblocks around legal system reform is that the people who are in charge of it don't want to let go of it, lawyers and judges and, and legal professionals, because it's about them. Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And you may have noticed that we sound a little different than we normally do in these introductions to the episodes. And that is because we are both uh, very diligently isolating ourselves in our own homes. And so we are recording this via phone rather than in person with our microphones as we usually do. Um, And of course, as you may have guessed, the reason we are isolating ourselves is because of the current COVID-19 crisis that we're all experiencing. Um, So this is a little bit of a, a different episode. You are going to hear, as usual, a conversation that Julie recorded with a wonderful guest shortly. But we wanted to set a bit of a frame around that because that conversation was recorded back in November, so well before the COVID-19 crisis began. But it's a great conversation, and we wanted to still release it today uh, because it actually is somehow even more relevant, I think, mm. given everything that's going on, because it's a great conversation uh, with Jordan Furlong about how technology is changing uh, the practice of law and the future of legal services. And that's somehow more relevant now than it was before. Indeed it is. So Jordan Furlong, I think uh, many people will know his name. Um, Jordan is a former legal journalist. Uh, he was actually the editor of a number of publications, including the Lawyers Weekly. And he's now very well known as a commentator on the legal profession and in particular talking about change. He actually describes himself as a global legal markets analyst. So what he's doing now is working with law firms to try to bring them along into a new world of legal services, which is very much um, different than the old one, which has far greater use of technology and and a different relationship at the center of it between the user and the provider. So we're going to hear his interview in a moment. But first of all, um, just so that you understand what's coming, we asked Jordan to record a second piece to this. And he's done that just in the last few days because he published a blog on SLAW, which we'll be putting the link up on the website, which talks about how the COVID-19 crisis is really shining a light on the fact that not only legal services, but the whole justice system is going to need to change to adapt to some of the realities that we're currently struggling with. And in particular, that means that courts have to become a service that's geared to user needs and not simply a place 
which is, you know, frequented by those who are the system specialists. So we've got two pieces here. First, Jordan's original interview with me and then a postscript uh, just recorded that brings us right up to date. Yes, and because you won't be hearing from Julie and I again, we just kind of wanted to briefly mention or, or point out to you some of the things that particularly struck us about this conversation to follow. Mm. So we won't give anything away, but I particularly loved myself that Jordan talks about how important information specialists are mm. becoming and will be in the future of legal services. So look out for that. And then, of course, he talks about the need for the justice system to become more efficient. And we are seeing that very clearly right now. That need is very concrete at this moment. And, um, you know, hopefully that understanding will increase and not end with the uh, COVID-19 crisis, which, of course, we do hope ends very soon. So that that the lessons will remain. That the lessons will remain, yeah. And just before we kind of sign off and move to the conversation, I think maybe uh, it might be a good idea, Julie, for us to say a little bit about what NSRLP is doing right now to um, kind of help in ways that we can in this situation. So just yeah. so you all are aware, we have compiled and are continuing to update and add to a document on our website that gives information about court closures across the country, as well as changes in procedures for things like filing deadlines and other procedures that are that are going on across the country. And we've separated that into the different provinces and territories. We're trying to keep it as up-to-date as possible. So go check that out if you've got an ongoing case and you're unsure about, you know, if it's still happening, when it's still happening, go check that out. And we'll be adding some other content to the site um, in the coming weeks. So hopefully some content that might help get you through uh, this time of, of isolation, podcasts, books, movies, TV shows, blogs you can read that uh, will keep you engaged in access to justice and social justice issues. So look out for that content in the coming days. And now let's move to Jordan and his discussion with me back in November, first of all, which feels eerily relevant today about the need to really change the relationship between the people who use the justice system and legal services and those who provide them. So let's listen. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Julie. Hi, thank you for taking this today. Really appreciate your time. I think that our listeners are really going to appreciate hearing about your ideas because um, I just, first of all, love the title of your book, What is a Bias Market? I think that will resonate for a lot of people listening to the podcast. And I'd like to, to get into some of those ideas, but first, it seems to me we have to begin by talking about how the lawyer-client relationship has, has really changed a lot in the last decade. And you know I've written a lot about this and you have written a lot about this. And, and in a way, it kind of sets the scene for the ideas that you're talking about in your book that you would like law firms and practitioners to consider. So can we start off by you saying something about what you think has really changed in the assumptions about that lawyer-client relationship, because when you and I went to law school, 
we were told that we had to stay in charge of our clients and, you know, they had to do what we told them. And all of that's changing. So what's changing and why does it matter? You know, and you're absolutely right, Julie. I remember that very well, this, this idea that they were inculcating in us that you needed to create this relationship with your clients, which was, and let's face it, it was, it was fundamentally a paternalistic yes. relationship. You know, it was, it was, yeah. kind of, it was of a piece with the, with the parochialism generally of, of the profession. And, and although for me this was the early 1990s, I don't think things have changed markedly, at least within, say, the law school environment or yeah. many lawyers. And that's part of it. I mean, you can, understand, you can understand where it comes from because there's the whole history of the obvious gap uh, between lawyers and clients in terms of power and knowledge and influence and so forth. Yes. And, and so you, you, I understand the sense of the fiduciary duty that exists between the two, but I, but I think that as a result, we had too many situations where a client would approach a lawyer almost like, you're doing me a favor by talking to me. Yeah, theater, yeah, it's, yeah. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and it used to be that, you know, I think that my parents' generation, for example, I think they really did feel that kind of passive in the relationship. But as you know and I know, you know, regardless of what is or isn't changing in legal education, to my mind, not quickly enough, the environment is no longer like that. Clients don't come in waiting to be told what to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it, it is interesting that we've seen, especially over maybe the last 10 or 15 years, a, a real change, a, a substantial and I think permanent change in the way that people and, well, people in businesses or as individuals or whatever, yeah. but, but they approach their lawyers with a much more assertive, a much, yeah. a, a much stronger, a, it, it's an assertion of identity. I guess it's an assertion of power by clients to say, I want to have a stronger role in this relationship. I want this to actually be a relationship. Mm -hmm. And and I want you to remember, uh, Ms. or Mr. Lawyer, that as much as I appreciate your guidance and your counsel and so forth, I'm the one who's signing the checks here. So, you know, and, and I think, and, and I think this, this is a, it's part of a gradual trend towards the, 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 the transformation of the lawyer client relationship into an actual partnership. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I'm doubtful it will ever be a completely equal partnership. I'm, I'm not sure that it necessarily could or even should be. But, but what we are absolutely experiencing a change in the dynamic of that relationship. And, and when I get a sense of the discomfort that many lawyers feel when they're dealing with clients these days, especially a veteran lawyer, someone who's been around for a while, mm-hmm. and you get the sense of, oh, clients are much more this, more demanding, more this, more that. Yeah, like, they're not deferential. That's one yeah. of the things I get told all the time. They're just not deferential anymore. I know. Go figure, hey. They, they're no, you know, it's, and, and this is not a bad thing. I mean, I, again, yeah. it's important to, have, to set expectations for your clients, to be realistic in terms of what, you, what your lawyer can do for you. But as I'm fond of saying, you know, this is not a question of, you know, clients going all weird on us. This is clients going normal. This is clients bringing some degree of normalcy and real world uh, aspects to, to the relationship. Yeah. And I think it's so, it's so interesting that, that you you put it in terms of normalcy because I think that you know the people that I talk to every day as self-represented litigants, who, most of whom, of course, have had a lawyer at some point, that's exactly what they see it as being as well. And it's not that each person, the lawyer and the client, has the same amount of knowledge or the same amount of experience. They have different amounts of knowledge and experience, but they have to work together in a partnership. And that's exactly how how I certainly see the future unfolding. So this means 
lots of things. And, and, you know, one of the things that it means is that lawyers have to think differently about how they work with their clients. But it also means that the kinds of services and products that we offer clients are starting to look different. And one of the things that you argue in your book, in, in Lawyer is a Buyer's Market, is that there are going to be more and more professionals in law firms who aren't actually lawyers or paralegals for that matter, but they are going to be people who have skills that are so important for the future of what would be a, a commercially viable form of legal practice. So information, law information specialists, software geeks who can develop systems yeah. to manage and provide online information and templates, data analysis analysts who can create the content. So can you say more, as you do, of course, in your book, expand this idea about who these specialists will be and why their expertise is becoming so important in the legal marketplace? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I think you I think you really nail it there with especially the example of information professionals and so forth. And because law is an information business in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. You know, we, we, we deal with traffic and information and knowledge and insight and so forth. And, and so it's, it's very close to the heart of what we do as lawyers. But I'll give you an example. Earlier this year, I was fortunate to speak to a, a, a group called the Private Law Libraries Summit. It's, a, it's kind of like chief knowledge officers and law librarians at a lot of large firms in the U.S. and Canada. Right. And, and I was talking to them about the fact that in future, well, even starting right now, but definitely in future, it isn't enough for law firms to say we have all these brilliant lawyers and have all kinds of experience and they're so, you know, have this great, because you can't run a business like this with all of your viable, marketable knowledge locked up inside the skulls of people's heads. Yes. Yeah, because as I said to this audience, think about skulls that they're attached to bodies and bodies walk out the door, <laughs> you know, and yeah. sometimes they walk down the street and join the firm down there. So I said law firms, especially as the, the nature of the, the, the demand for legal services changes, and I, I won't, that's a rabbit hole down, which I won't go too far, but the, the, the nature of demand is such that it's going to be really important that law firms have enormous amounts of knowledge, knowledge leverageable condensable, communicable knowledge that they can use to serve their clients. Yeah. And what they're going to need is not just these wonderful lawyer brains, they're going to need institutional brains. And for this, to develop this kind of a database and system, you will need librarians and knowledge managers and researchers and archivists and yeah. data scientists and all these people. And so I, I said to them, look, you are, so I'm not just buttering you up here, you are critical yeah. to the future of law firms to be competitive. And I really think you can apply that pretty much across the board to all the other professions. Absolutely. Not just law. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, you know, but, but what do you think is the reaction of people in the profession who for so many years have been used to being, as I remember an interviewee once very memorably describing it to me, as a brain on a stick. He said, <laughs> that's my job. I'm a brain on a stick. Now, oh you know, God. what you just described, Jordan, is how this knowledge is outside of people's brains now. And there is a very important reason for that, which is that a lot of the work that lawyers do, and again, I think there's a lot of resistance to this idea, but I believe this is reality, is actually fairly repetitive, mm -hmm. can live in templates, doesn't have to be reinvented every single time a client walks in the door. You know, this is what Robert, um, Richard Sussman talks about is the commodification, of course, of legal services. And it seems to me that some of what you're talking about that these professionals who are not lawyers are going to do is they're going to help make law more commodified and systematized. And that's going to make it 
more financially viable for people to buy. Is that is that accurate? I think it really is. I mean, it's um, the, the, the systematization, the, um, the the ability to take take legal information, take legal knowledge, but take it out of the head of lawyers. Where again, it's a wonderful place. Inside lawyers' heads are you know, aside from all of our <laughs> mental emotional issues, it's a wonderful place to be. But we need a, a way to be able to deliver the, the the payload of solutions and ideas and insights in a much more effective and a much more amplified manner. So this is why you need these kind of systems. People can access and say, look, I have a question. I'm going to put it plain English, mm. whatever language I'm using. And the system can ask questions and it can pull more information out of you, much as a lawyer would do in a, right. in a, in, in a situation like that. And it will allow people to access this information in a much more affordable, a much more accelerated uh, way. It's, it's kind of the, the, the democratization, I guess, of Yes. Professional services. Richard uh, and Daniel Susskind, his son, write this extensively in yes. his new book about the profession. So there's something. It, it, it's a hard reality for some lawyers to get their heads around that the future of law is going to be multidisciplinary. But but this is what I keep telling them: is that it's not going to be just lawyers in the future. Well, I mean, that was one of the the obvious things that that sort of pops up when you describe this future, Jordan. Is I think about all of the resistance has been to any kind of structural changes that will allow lawyers to go into business with people who are not lawyers, for example. I mean, you know, we all know what the arguments around confidentiality and so forth are, but really, is that, is that enough to say that we shouldn't be able to allow people to put viable businesses together that have a range of different professions on board? I mean, even outside of the systemization that was about, what about having somebody in the same building who can give you tax advice or somebody down the hall who can refer you to a counselor or a child welfare specialist? Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things where if you approach it from a, a non-legal, outside the legal profession perspective, it makes all the sense in the world that you would integrate law with other professions, with other uh, technical uh, aptitudes in, in, into a, a suite of services and a suite of uh, products where necessary, but certainly services and, and, and interfaces that will allow you to bring all sorts of different perspectives, yes, but also uh, expertise and, and, yeah. and insights and so forth. I mean, th th something I, I often see when I'm talking to my audiences about this is that, look, clients don't bring us legal problems. They bring us problems. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. they come in and they kind of put this big boom problem on the desk. And, and, if, and if you deal with people in, in a consumer law, especially in, say, in family or, or immigration or areas like this, they have a long story to tell, and it's very important yeah. to them that they tell it. Yeah. And, and too often what happens is they, they, they tell their whole story, and the lawyer's sitting there, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then says, okay, there's the legal issue. I'm going to pull it out, and we're going to talk yeah. about this legal issue, and I'm going to write you a 10-page memo all about it. And it's like people need more than just the legal yeah. expertise. And, and, and so and when you look at some of the new providers, especially like the, the large accounting firms, I'm, I'm not saying a large accounting firm is going to do a great job serving a family law client either, but at least they have the ability culturally and ethically and structurally to be to bring many different... To draw in other kinds of expertise. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. So, so let's talk about the profession. I mean, this is... <laughs> otherwise, it's the elephant on the table. Um, there is not a really great track record here of being open to change, and you maybe put it that way. Yeah. And I mean, law is an elite profession, and every elite profession is going through the same kind of seismic changes that you're that you're describing that are 
partly about changes in public culture and what people believe, you know, they should be able to do and say, um, even if they don't have law degree, um, but to engage in, in, in the process of, of getting help. And partly it's about the World Wide Web and access to all kinds of resources on that lawyers used to be gatekeepers of. But I think there is a lot of resistance within the profession to imagining that what lawyers are doing can really be opened up in this way, can really be seen as a multidisciplinary partnership with client-based approach. So what do you do and what would you say, in particular to younger lawyers, to incentivize them to really get on board with these ideas? When I talk to young lawyers, and I do try to talk to students as often as I can, you know, and, and, to sort of, and, I, and, I, write it, and I write for them, uh, extensively. So if anybody is, you know, if you're a student or a young lawyer and these are thoughts that are of interest to you, drop me a line any time. I can point you to a dozen things I've written and some of them may be useful. But yeah. but, in, but in general, I, I try to emphasize to them that the, the skills and the, exp- the skills and the knowledge and the traits that you are going to need to succeed as a lawyer in the 2020s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, which will be the course of their careers, are going to be very different and far more numerous than the ones that that got the previous generations through, right? Yeah. If you were a lawyer in 1980, you needed only a very certain set of skills. Well, you, know you were brain on the stick. Yeah, brain on the stick, honestly, really. It was, <laughs> it was not that hard relative to, to the demands now. So what I say to them is that here are the skills that you, you want to work on. Find ways to practice collaboration. Work in a group, and, 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 and don't just make it a group where everybody's kind of fighting over responsibility. Actually collaborate. Get mm. be mm. some of your parts. Develop empathy. Any to any have the opportunity. And it don't mean sitting down and like giving someone a, a shoulder to cry on necessarily, although sometimes that is part of it. But empathy is, you know, see the world the way someone else sees it and feel oh, it. I think empathy is tremendously. Yeah. In the course that I currently teach, um, it is the number one skill that we talk about. And interestingly, there's been some, you know, there's been research now that show that's what clients want from their lawyers. And we're not just talking about personal clients. Corporate clients want to feel understood and empathized with as well. Oh, absolutely, right? It's, it's the same thing. The client brings us the whole problem, and they would like it if we appreciated the whole problem in front of them. And, and that's the You have to see the world the way the client sees. You have to feel to the world the way the client's feeling. And this is hard because my generation, your generation of lawyers were taught, don't emotionally attach mm. to your clients. Say, keep it was a sign of weakness. Exactly. Yeah. It's a sign of weakness. What, and what, if I may say, what a male thing to say. Yeah, you may say that. I can say that, but <laughs> right. And I also say, you know, d- design thinking events all over the place. Those are great ways to kind of rearrange the way your brain works. It, it's one of those things where first day of law school to say we're going to teach you how to be, how to think like a lawyer, right? And part of the problem is that you know they they don't teach us how to stop. <laughs> but this, but the second problem is, you know what? It's it's important to be able to think like a lawyer, but it's even more important to be able to feel like a client. And that's something that I, I emphasize. So one thing I say to law students is this. Before you graduate law school, go out, find a lawyer in the town or the city where you are, and get your will made out, right? Because you need it anyway. Everybody needs a will at some point. Most kids don't have one. And have a client experience. Have the client experience for mm. too late because as soon as you become a lawyer, you will forget what it's like to be on the other side of the desk. Yes. But walk into place and keep a journal. How were you made to feel? How were you greeted? How were you, were you patronized? Were you listened to and so forth? I said, remember that feeling because everybody who's going to be across the desk from you, whether you're in private practice, whether you're in-house, whether you're in the public sector department, doesn't matter. Anybody who comes to you looking for something, they're going to be sitting in the same chair that you were once in. You've got to remember what it felt like, and that will make you a better lawyer than 90% of the lawyers that came before you. 
great way of putting it. And, and I can see many people listening to that and feeling like that gives them some inspiration. And, you know, I think that we have to be realistic about the fact as well that if younger lawyers are going to want to think about practice in this way, they will sometimes be discouraged mm-hmm. by older lawyers. Um, and, you know, and I don't want to, you know, paint this too Machiavellian, but, you know, we we have these debates these days um, about the purpose of law and how far the purpose of law is about providing a lawyer, a living for lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's something that Richard Susskind, who we've mentioned a couple of times mm-hmm. in this yeah. conversation, said. And I think that, you know, you and I have, are on record saying some very similar things, that this needs to become uh, a client-focused service business in a way that it really never has done in the past. Um, you know, I remember one lawyer once telling me that this expression that lawyers use all the time, uh, that's on instructions from my client. I have taken instructions from my client. Mm-hmm. What that really meant was I told them what to do, and this is what I told them <laughs> what to do. So, yeah. you know, this that you're articulating and this evolving different relationship between the people who provide legal services and the people who buy them, um, it's it's a debate that is pretty fraught now. And I'm sure that you aren't everybody's favorite person in the legal profession for expressing some of the views <laughs> that you do. Yeah, right. And, you know, on that, I can certainly relate myself. But you have obviously decided, Jordan, that this is what you think is really important to say to the profession and people inside the profession. So when did you decide you were willing to be unpopular with yeah. some parts of the profession and to take that risk and to, and to speak about this? Oh my gosh! Um, you, you know, Julie, it, it's hard to say because you know what? My, my, my becoming a gadfly was never my <laughs> was never my goal. Few people have that as a career goal. No, that's, I that, think. That, that's probably true. I really think it was just because I, I began, I began writing about the law and reading about the law, and there were so many things about it that just didn't make sense to me from the point of view of lawyers and clients, and I just thought. It, it, it felt like the truth to me, and I felt like I got to go tell the truth, you know, mm-hmm. as, as I perceive it to be, um, and, and and sort of try to get that message out there. And and, and how's that, that been going for you? You know what? Surprisingly well, because you're right. Really? I, there, are, there are some people out there who uh, will, you know, they will roll their eyes so hard the mention of my name that you know they'll they might they might lose some vision. <laughs> um, which, but that's fine, right? Because, but. In a lot, I will tell you all the other thing too, though, Julie, is that I'm I'm really not particularly unique in in that sense or, or special in that sense of saying I want to tell the truth about what's going on and to do the most good that I can. The only thing that makes me different is that I was very fortunate and I was very privileged uh, to have a platform, right? That I mm-hmm. could I could do this from. I was at the, I was at the CBA's magazine when I first started doing this stuff, and then the blog. Right. Yes, I remember. Yeah. yeah. So. So honestly, um, I, I think I'm just one of many, many people who see what's not just what's wrong with the law, but where it could be better for clients, for the public, for lawyers, um, for everybody. Um, but I'm just uh, fortunate enough to have a platform that allows me to whatever I say to get you know amplified a bit more. So uh, honestly, and you're also willing to speak up, Jordan, because not everybody is, and yeah. I think I think it's important to recognize that too. Well, thank you. I, I just try to use it responsibly. That's my that's that's the way I, I approach it. Thank you so much for this conversation today, Julian. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Julie. Thank you very much.
Well, you know, the saying is uh, a week in politics is a, is, is a long time. Two weeks in a pandemic feels like a lifetime. Uh, and, and we are just at the start. I mean, I'm, I'm giving you this response on March 25th, uh, so it's probably about a month after we last spoke. Uh, and, of course, the world has turned upside down by then. And by the time your, your listeners hear this uh, podcast, the world, I'm sure, will have turned even further. And, and what's ahead um, is probably going to be very difficult, increasingly grim for all of us. And, and it was in that context that I, I, I amended and wrote that, that uh, column at Slaw. And it was all based around this conversa- conversation I had uh, with Shannon Salter. And if, you, if your listeners don't know who Shannon is, they should. She is an unsung heroine of the uh, of legal system reform in Canada and of access to justice. Uh, she's the founder and chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in BC. Google, uh, Google her and Google the CRT and learn more about that. And I was fortunate to have run into Shannon at the ABA Tech Show in Chicago near the end of February, which was almost literally one of the last events that took place before uh, before the pandemic really began to hit North America. And, and in having this conversation uh, with her, I was kind of saying, you know, why have we not seen civil resolution tribunals in other provinces and in other territories? Wouldn't it be great to have one uh, every, everywhere you go? And, and her response to me was really interesting and very thought-provoking because she said, well, yeah, obviously it would be great, but, but the point is not to go and replicate all kinds of civil resolution tribunals, right? The point is not to create a CRT at all. The point is to create something in our justice system which is human-designed, which is user-focused. And that's really what the CRT is. They, they went through a human-design process to figure out how can we help to resolve these disputes in terms of uh, condos and in terms of small claims and now increasingly in terms of auto insurance. And what they wound up with was this online uh, resolution system. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything so long as it is designed with people in mind, designed for the people who are going to use it, for the people who need it. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me because what, what I kind of realized was that is the exact opposite of what we do in the law. Our entire justice system, our entire legal system is built around the people who are paid to resolve disputes, who are paid to transact legal needs, not around the people who actually have these needs, who are suffering from these disputes, who need the help. And, and, and that's really, I think, where we have fundamentally consistently run into all the roadblocks around legal system reform is that the people who are in charge of it don't want to let go of it, lawyers and judges and, and legal professionals, because it's about them, right? Or it's about us. I mean, I'm a lawyer too, right? It's about us. It's about them. And, and we don't want to lose control of that. We like it that way. And, and that is not, that's not human-centered uh, design. So... That was uh, the, the point I had made in the column, which I then wrote, then the pandemic hit. And, and so I essentially amended it and said, look at what's happened, right? Courts are shutting down all over the place. We're, we're, they're being forced to go in a very kind of jury-rigged methodology towards, you know, video hearings and, and so forth. Um, and, and that's just the courts, right? Law firms are sending their lawyers home because they have to work remotely. Uh, law students, oh my God, I feel so bad for this whole graduating class of 2020 who are graduating into this graveyard of an economy. 
Um, and, and the problem is none of our legal systems, none of our legal mechanisms and constructs, the justice system as we know it today, it's not going to survive what's coming, right? Someone asked me uh, literally just yesterday, do you think the pandemic is going to bring about uh, a, a rapid transformation and digitization of law? And I said, let's be very careful not to fall into this temptation of, of looking upon the pandemic as this unhappy event, which, you know, well, silver lining is at least we'll get a better justice system, right? The pandemic is a global catastrophe. And it's going to have, it's going to exact an immense cost for months and maybe years in terms of human lives and in terms of the economy in every country that is afflicted by it. And the challenge for us as lawyers, right? Everybody has to do their part. Everybody who's involved, you know, you, you have to fix up your own little corner of the world as best you can. And for us as lawyers and legal professionals and people who are involved in the justice system, this is our neighborhood, and we have to clean this up and, and make it as good as we possibly can. And our job right now is to recognize two things. Number one, the old systems, the old constructs, the old habits, they're no good to us anymore, right? You, you, you can't bring people to court because people can't go inside a courtroom. You can't have more than two or three people together in one space, right? And this goes back to what Richard Susskind said years ago. And I think of all his observations, this is one that's really going to going to be remembered. He says, court is a service, not a place. And I think we're going to find out in the coming weeks and months and years just how true that has to be and how true that is going to be. So what, I, what I'm calling for now is, number one, again, recognize that the old systems are falling away rapidly and are not going to be any good to us anymore. And secondly, as we pull together replacements as we pull together, again, jury-rigged solutions, platforms, and systems to, to help, you know, re-engineer the justice system in these extremely difficult times, then we have to make it human-designed, human-centered. It's not about judges. It's not about courts. It's not about lawyers. It is about the people who need legal services. And so long as what we build and design and, and pull together in these coming weeks and months and years fits that definition, it's not going to matter what it looks like in the end, just like it didn't matter if that was a CRT or something else. What matters is we will have a justice system that is going to be about the people who need it, not about the people who ostensibly run it. Uh, is that worth the pandemic? No, it's not. Um, the, the price we're going to pay to get to that point is far too high. And, and at the end, as I said to this person who asked me, are we going to have a transformed justice system at the end? Yeah, we are. But it's, you know, it's going to feel like beside the point. It's going to feel like, you know, was that worth what we paid? And the answer is probably no, it, it, it was not. But that is the opportunity and the mandate we now have. This is, this is our moment to create a justice system that is human designed and user centered Let's get this right. That's my message in the blog post, and I guess that's my uh, message right here as well. In Other News Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. Much of the world has been brought to a standstill, and we wanted to use this time to share some of our own announcements with you. 
As we mentioned last time, first and foremost, we encourage all of our listeners to stay safe, wash their hands, and self-isolate or self-quarantine as appropriate. We hope you're all doing as well as you can be, all things considered. That brings us to our first update. The coronavirus has continued to have a variety of impacts around the world and here in Canada. In particular, there have been a lot of steps taken by courts and other legal institutions. Last time, we mentioned some specific news pieces from across the country. We noticed that a lot of updates that were being published were directed at members of the legal profession, and it wasn't always clear how announcements would impact SRLs. We decided to launch a page on our website, which we've linked, that lists updates from across the country, with info catered to self-reps. We will be doing our best to keep this up to date, but please feel free to notify us if we've missed anything. The news is changing constantly, and we appreciate your help. On a related note, there are some other projects that NSRLP is working on in light of the pandemic. We're looking into how the protocols for affidavits and notarizing generally are changing given the directive to participate in physical distancing. We also realize that the court closures will have drastic impacts even once the pandemic has subsided, and there are a number of cases that are urgent in nature. We've had SRLs ask about what urgent might mean, and this is another question we're looking into. For those of you engaging in physical distancing and have some free time, we're also compiling some lists of A to J entertainment to help you pass the time. And we'll also be listing online lectures and educational resources for SRLs, for those of you who might prefer something more productive. And we're also hoping to offer an information webinar for SRLs at some point. Stay tuned for details on all of those updates. If you have any content you'd like to share, please send us an email. In the meantime, be sure to catch up on all the past episodes of this podcast. Today marks episode 55, and there's been a lot of great content over the seasons. Our second update is about NSRLP West. You might recall that our last episode was a conversation with Andrew Pilliar, Assistant Professor of Law at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, British Columbia, and Director of the new NSRLP West chapter. There was a great response to that episode, and NSRLP West now has their own social media presence. Be sure to give them a follow on Facebook and Twitter. The Facebook page is NSRLP West, and the Twitter handle is at NSRLPW. Lastly, in case you missed it, we also had a great article published by Tanya Perlin last week about kindness and compassion in times of fear and uncertainty. Things might be challenging right now, but this article discusses a lot of important points, including a list of seven actions we can take to combat fear and stress. And most importantly, the article is a useful reminder that we have the potential to come out of this storm a better, stronger, kinder, and healthier society. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation. 